Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month's scientific adventurer Greg Foote discusses what it takes to do research in the most extreme environments on Earth with oceanographer Lee Marsh and mountaineer medic Dan Martin. So uh, welcome, welcome to Exploring the Extremes, um, a scientific adventure up to the top of the world and then diving back down into the ocean as well. Um, but I should probably uh, introduce these two faces in front of you. So first, um, mountaineer and medic, Dr. Dan Martin, over there. Hello there. Uh, Dan, who you, yeah, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> who, who do you work for, Dan? Uh, so, so I'm a, a doctor, an intensive care doctor at the Royal Free Hospital, just down the road uh, from here. Uh, and I also am a senior lecturer at University College in London. One of the best jobs in the world. Uh, <laughs> uh, and deep sea scientist uh, and explorer, um, Dr. Lee Marsh. Give her a huge round of applause as well. Thank you. How would you like to introduce yourself, Lee? Um, so, yeah, I'm a deep sea scientist. I work as a research fellow at the University of Southampton. I also work as a communications officer for the National Oceanography Centre based in Southampton as well. Very neat. Um, so, today, the idea is, is to have a look at what makes these environments extreme why people like these two amazing scientists decide to take scientific research to the extremes, uh, why do it there, and also have a look at some of the amazing research that they have been doing over the last kind of five, ten years, um, and the impact of that for kind of all of us sat here. Um, I'm Greg Foot. I should probably say hello. Uh, so it's, it's my job to host tonight. Thanks very much, John uh, and the RI, for the invitation. Um, I normally work on TV and YouTube um, and podcast as well. So uh, I've had the pleasure of um, joining Dan and his team a few years back, um, going up to every space camp and doing some research with them. So that was amazing. And I've also had the amazing experience of diving down into the ocean as well, down to 1,000 feet deep. So um, I'll kind of bring a little bit of that experience to it and hopefully try to kind of pull out the science for you all. Um, so let's, let's start. I was going to say let's dive in, but we, we want to go up first, actually, don't we? <laughs> enough puns, enough puns. Um, Dan, can you um, take us through a little bit of the history of the exploration of um, high altitude? Certainly. Thanks very much, Greg. Great. Um, and many of you will recognise uh, this mountain. This is Mount Everest, so the highest point on the surface of the Earth. The, the summit of Mount Everest is 8,848 metres, or 29,000 29 feet uh, above sea level, uh, the highest point on, on Earth, uh, and possibly the limit of human uh, tolerance to, to high altitude by, by some sort of strange coincidence. Uh, there's a long history of climbing on Mount Everest, and I just want to give you a little flavour of that for those who don't know it. Uh, the British took three expeditions uh, to uh, Mount Everest in the 1920s, the first an exploratory one in 1921, uh, then the first real attempt to climb the mountain in 1922, and then, for those of you who know the story, the sort of ill-fated expedition of 1924, uh, where George Mallory and Sandy Irvin uh, disappeared near the summit of Mount Everest uh, in June of 1924. Nobody knows whether they made it to the summit or not, uh, and uh, Mallory's body was actually found 70 years later, still with no hard evidence that he'd either got to the top uh, or not. 
About 30 years later, uh, famously, uh, Hillary and Tenzing uh, reached the, the summit of Mount Everest, uh, uh, a New Zealander uh, and a Nepali, uh, with the news uh, managing to come back to coincide with the, the day uh, of the, the Queen's coronation uh, in 1953. And this photograph here, you can see, is of Tenzing, not of Hillary. Uh, Tenzing actually couldn't use a, a proper camera, so Hillary had to take the one and only picture on the summit. So this sort of iconic picture is of, of Tenzing uh, stood on the summit of Mount Everest. It's very difficult to, uh, to talk about that trip without mentioning this gentleman, which many of you may not have heard of. Uh, his name is Dr. Griffiths Pugh, and he was the scientist, a physiologist that was part of that 1953 expedition, and arguably that, that summit attempt would have been unsuccessful if it wasn't for the science that Griffith had put into that trip. He designed the clothing, he designed the tents, he organized the acclimatization profiles and did research right through that uh, uh, expedition in 1953. He was a truly uh, wonderful scientist. Uh, about uh, um, 30 years, uh, 25 years after that, uh, Reinhold Messner uh, and Peter Haveler uh, managed to get to the top of Mount Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen. As I'm sure you know, people use bottled oxygen to climb Everest most of the time, and the physiologists and experts uh, in the 1970s said it would be absolutely impossible to reach the summit of Mount Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen, and if people did get there, they would be severely brain damaged. So these two are very proud when they showed the scientists to be wrong, and of course many people have since summited uh, Mount Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen. My own part in that sort of history, uh, this sort of fish-eye view uh, of us sat on the summit of Mount Everest. I'm the, the small person right in the middle between uh, the expedition leader on the left, uh, Mike Grocott, and the climbing leader on the right, Sandeep Dillon. We summited Everest uh, on the 23rd of May 2007, so almost 10 years ago uh, this month now, uh, as part of a huge uh, uh, scientific uh, expedition, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later. Great stuff. Thanks, Dan. Good background. Uh, Lee, can you do the same for um, diving into the deeps? Of when course, did it start? Absolutely. Um, so, again, this is a picture just of the deep ocean. So, to put that into context, what is the deep ocean? So, we classify that as anything below 200 meters. Now, the deepest point in the world's oceans is actually the Challenger Deep, which some of you may have heard of, which is in the Marianas Trench. That's just over 10,000 meters deep. So, the average depth of the ocean is actually at 4,000 meters. And that actually covers over 80% of, um, of, uh, of the global oceans itself and over 60% of our planet Earth. So history, in terms of going to the deep ocean, in 1934, William Beebe and Otis Barton actually descended to the deep ocean to 922 metres in this still sphere called the bathysphere. So that was just off of Bermuda. Since then, moving on to the 1960s, Don Walsh and uh, Jack Picard were the first two to ever descend to the Challenger Deep. So they actually still hold the record to getting down to the deepest part of the ocean at 10,911 metres. Now, Don Walsh was part of the US Navy and Jack Picard was a scientist. His father actually helped in the design of the Trieste. And so to date, that is the, most, that is the deepest dive that any manned submersible has ever made it down to. Having said that, in 2012, James Cameron, the uh, film director, built a one-manned uh, deep submersible to contend that dive, and they made it down, or he made it down, on a solo dive, just shy of it, 10,890 metres. So he was just being so grasped close. with it. So <laughs> close. 
Um, but he holds the record for the deepest solo dive. So James Cameron is the only man to have gone down to that depth on his own. Since then, in the decades that followed, uh, scientific researchers like myself and colleagues over in the States, in the US, and over in Europe globally have used manned submersibles to conduct scientific research. Here, quite famously, this is the deep submergence vehicle Alvin, which is famous for finding hydrothermal vents, but also for locating the Titanic as well. Similarly, I've been really fortunate to be one of those scientists that's actually been able to go in a deep sea submersible down to the bottom of the ocean. So this is the uh, Japanese uh, Institute of Marine and Science and Technology. That's their submersible vehicle, and that's rated 6,500 meters. So in February last year, um, I was fortunate enough to head down to the depths of the Indian Ocean. So there's a video playing now of you can see inside the actual submersible. It's very small, so there was three of us in there, two pilots and myself as a scientist, and there's three viewing portholes. So you can just see my head is looking through one porthole, and just in the background, you can see the seafloor rushing by. So actually, that, we dove to a depth of that day of 3,580 meters in wow. search of new hydrothermal vents. So that was a really fascinating experience for me. Wow, I bet that was amazing. Look how small those little ports yeah. are as well. Um, cool, so that just gives you a little, bit of, a little bit of history, a little bit of perspective on... Um, these extreme environments and who, who kind of faced and the technology that you kind of developed to, uh, to enable man to go and explore them. But what I want to look at now is why these environments are so extreme. Why are they such hard, tough environments for us to go into? So um, we're going to start by looking at high altitude again. So Dan's realm. Um, so why is it tricky? Why is it hard going to high altitude? Any, any suggestions? Lack of oxygen. Okay, so this is going to be tricky because I kind of want you all to see, but it's going to be sideways and I'm going to block you from it. It's going to be really rude. Yeah, no, okay. uh, so let me just do this for a second. Um, what I want to do is I want to build you a model of the atmosphere so that we can work out where the idea of the lack of oxygen comes from. Okay, so what I've got here is I've got some layers of atmosphere, right? So I'm going to start slotting them on. Now, we actually have 60 miles of atmosphere above us and about a fifth of that atmosphere is made of oxygen. So that's what the little uh, crude red dots are on there. And <coughs> you might not realise it, but air is really heavy. It's got weight, and it's pushing down on top of your shoulders, and whichever way up you are, I guess, uh, all the time. But we kind of evolved to become used to that. But what you can see, what's, what's happening to the air, layers of air down at the bottom? they're getting squashed. And that's exactly the same as what happens here. We are at sea level, which is down the bottom here. Okay, And the air around us has been squashed by the air above, the weight of all that air above. So when we say the pressure, when we say atmospheric pressure, down the bottom here is at high atmospheric pressure because the air has been squashed. Okay, But the air at the top here has not been squashed because there's less above it. And that's at a lower atmospheric pressure. So now imagine, now imagine taking a breath taking a lungful of air from down at the bottom here at sea level. You're going to breathe in a lot of air and therefore a lot of oxygen. But imagine taking the same size lungful of air higher up, up here, which would be the equivalent of the top of the world, top of, top of Everest. You're going to take in less air in each breath. So when you say lack of oxygen, you've got to be careful because there is still the same percentage of oxygen in the air but the fact is you're breathing in less air. So that's why you're getting in less oxygen. So that is what I think is a really neat explanation for why, as you go higher and higher up higher altitude, you get less and less oxygen in with each breath. So that is part of the problem. That is part of the challenge. 
Can you take us the next step, Dan? Why is, why is that a problem? So, um, thank you very much. That's a very neat explanation, uh, Greg. Um, and there, there are uh, a whole host of, of challenges when, when you climb at high altitude. Uh, it's usually very cold because of the adiabatic change in, in temperature. So the further away you get from the surface uh, of the Earth, the colder it gets. These are very remote environments. There's also a lot of uh, objective danger from avalanche and crevasses. Uh, and there's also less atmosphere to protect you from sunlight and, and, and ultraviolet light. But it's this lack of oxygen, uh, which you have described, that is the real physiological challenge for us as human beings ascending to very high altitude. Um, what your model sort of uh, actually uh, it, it creates is, uh, you see this graph here with the, with the red line on it on the left, there's an exponential fall uh, in barometric pressure as you ascend higher and higher to altitude. Uh, and so as you, as you go higher, uh, the pressure falls, uh, and as Greg explained, uh, the, the consequence of this is there's less oxygen in the air that we breathe. And the way that we uh, phrase this scientifically is partial pressure. So we describe the partial pressure of oxygen decreasing as you get higher and higher in altitude. And as the model showed you there, it means that for each breath that you take in, although there's a, a, a large volume of air, there's not very much in it. And particularly, there's not very much oxygen in it. Uh, when you measure the partial pressure of oxygen at base camp, uh, Everest base camp, at about 5,000 meters or so, there's about half the amount of oxygen that you would be breathing here at sea level. And by the time we get to the summit of Everest, there's only a third of the oxygen that you would be breathing at sea level. So very low levels of oxygen indeed when you get up to the top of Everest. The effect that this has on you is that it causes something that we call hypoxia, so a low level of oxygen in your blood. But the human body has a way of adapting to this low level of oxygen if you give it enough time, and we call this acclimatization. Uh, and very, put very basically, what happens is you breathe a bit harder and faster, your heart rate increases, the power with which your heart uh, pumps increases, and over time, you get an increased number of red blood cells which carry oxygen around the body. These are all things we've known for many, many years, and part of the research that we're doing is to look much further uh, down the sort of chain, if you like, of where what happens to oxygen to look at what happens in cells and tissues. And again, we'll come back to this in a little while uh, and try and explain to you what we've found. But even though we can adapt physiologically uh, to, high, to high altitude, given enough time, we still have to protect ourselves from this very harsh environment. Uh, this is a, a picture I took uh, from the, the summit of Everest, all covered in flags in the foreground there. And you can just see one of the, the climbers uh, in the bottom corner of the picture. Where, and what he's wearing is this enormous suit, a down suit, to protect from the extreme cold there. Uh, also, what's less clear uh, is this climber is wearing uh, an oxygen mask. Uh, and hopefully, uh, Greg is going to be able to show you some of these things now. Okay, this um, is one of those down suits. This was one of the ones from the teams in 2007 when indeed. you summited. So um, quite often ask people to suggest what it, what it looks like, and the best answer is always a giant onesie, because that's <laughs> essentially what it is, um, or a giant sleeping bag. So it's packed full of down, mm. isn't it? So it's, the insulating power of this is phenomenal. Just give that a squeeze. You can feel it's packed full of... Is it feathers in this or it's synthetic? Yeah, it's feathers. Yeah. Uh, so um, absolutely amazing insulating. <laughs> 
You sweat quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, big pairs of gloves as well, because you want to keep all the extremities warm. And as Dan was saying, I didn't bring the oxygen tank with me because no. I came on the train and that thing's heavy. Uh, but this is <clears throat> one of the masks. How, what, at what height would you start on oxygen? Uh, so somewhere around seven and a half thousand meters, somewhere in that vicinity, uh, definitely over 8,000 meters um, uh, in altitude. You, you would start to use this for climbing uh, and for sleeping as well. It's very really so difficult to sleep at night without oxygen. This is, um, this is one of the top out masks. The same one that Bear Grylls used when he, when he, when he parapeted. Apparently so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's quite clever actually because you lose quite a lot of the oxygen on your exhale. Um, because it free flows, and what this does is that free flows into this uh, bolus, and it means that it's kind of being stored so that when you then inhale again, it kind of dumps, dumps back in, so it's a very neat design. Um, so, yeah, bit of kit. Yeah. Very, very cool bit of kit. Okay, thanks, Dan. So that's the um, physiological response and the technological uh, response, and the way that you uh, acclimatise to high altitude. So what I want to do now is have a look at going... Uh, into the water. So we've seen that pressure is the big issue when we go, uh, go up. Pressure is also the big issue when you go down. Now, the thing is, is that water is an awful lot denser than air. So one metre cubed of air is 1.2 kilograms. Somewhere around there, yes. Um, and one metre cubed of water is... One metric tonne. Yeah, one metric tonne, 1,000 kilograms. So... Um, the thing is, that means that the water is an awful lot denser than the air, so any pressure change is going to happen quicker with depth. And the atmospheric pressure here at uh, sea level is one atmosphere. So that is the pressure you get from 60 miles of air above, okay? And that we call that one atmosphere of pressure. But every 10 metres you dive down underwater, the pressure jumps by another atmosphere, thanks to that weight of water above you. So how do you cope with that? Well, here is a picky of me in a Triton submersible. Um, not that deep, we reckon about 200 metres. I went down to about 1,000 foot, 305 I think I went to. Um, absolutely amazing bit of kit, could talk to you about it for hours, but I won't nerd out too much. But one thing to notice is that you see the, um, the space that I'm in, the hull that I'm in. So it's a spherical pressure hull. And the reason it's a sphere is because if you were to try any other shape, then the pressure of all that water pushing on top of it would deform it. It would experience the pressure in different ways. So this is a spherical pressure hole because that is the three-dimensional shape that can experience the pressure equally on all sides and compress it on all sides. And you actually find that as you dive down, the perspex pressure hole does actually get squashed as you go further and further down. Uh, and that is why this one is rated to about 1,000 foot. Uh, and the ones that you, know, you and your team have worked with a lot better. So this was on with the Necton mission. Actually, we followed in the bubbles of, of BB and Barton uh, last year, just off the coast of Bermuda. It was pretty amazing. So I think this is a cool bit of kit. But you kind of look at this and go, yeah, it's nice technology, but... I do, indeed. It's not good enough. It is. It is nice technology. And as I said, I was fortunate enough myself to have been in a submersible. And I don't think anything can compare to actually seeing, thing with, seeing life with your own eyes, especially Absolutely. when you dive down and you see the bioluminescence, the light fades, the animals start glowing, the zooplankton is skimming around. It's incredible. But 
it has its limitations. You are diving down in a submarine, you're limited by oxygen. The battery life of the subs, all of these subs are run off of batteries, that is limited as well. And you're limited in space. So you can see Greg there, he's in his sphere with the pilot. It's very My sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> Myself, I was in the Japanese sphere. Although it was a, a bigger submersible, most of that was syntactic foam, which is actually the buoyancy for the, the submersible itself. The actual sphere was similar size to Greg's, but it's made of steel. Um, and there was two pilots in there and just one scientist, just myself, making all the logs and doing the navigation. So the technology we like to use in the UK, or that we do have to our, for our use in the UK, for the UK scientific community, are what are called autonomous underwater vehicles and remotely operated vehicles. So this is a type of marine, uh, marine autonomous systems. So this is our <coughs> autonomous underwater vehicle, Autosub 6000. As the name suggests, it's rated to 6,000 metres and it's an autonomous submersible. Um, this is great because what we can do with this sub is, although it's battery powered, it's totally untethered from the ship, so it goes off autonomously. It's pre-programmed by engineers on board and it can go take maps of the seafloor. So it can fly above the seafloor about five metres altitude and it can map the seafloor for us. It can take some photos, which is fantastic. If we're going to areas of the ocean and we don't know what we're going to find, we will send our auto sub down to do the initial mapping and to take some photos. But then we'd also like to take samples. We'd like to have our eyes and our hands down there. So where we can go with the sub, with the manned subs, we now use remotely operated vehicles. These are tethered to the ships, so they're not limited by battery life. There are no people in them, so they're totally remotely operated. And they're remotely operated from a ship. So we have a control van with a number of pilots and engineers. And we can have up to five or six scientists in that control van at any one time. That means this robot can be operated for 24, 36 hours continuously on the seafloor, taking samples. So it has two arms there, you can see. They're called seven function arms, so they have a shoulder joint, they have an elbow joint, they have a wrist joint. They also have forced feedback on the claws as well. So if we go to pick up a sample and we pick up something hard, the pilot will know it's hard. If we go pick up a sponge, they'll know it's soft. They know not to apply too much pressure with it. Mm -hmm. This is a really incredible piece of kit. So the amount we can do with these vehicles is phenomenal. We also have high-definition cameras on board, which allow us to see everything. We have five or six cameras and a whole bank of LED lights as well. So those two vehicles are just two of the fleet of the UK vehicles. So we're really <laughs> fortunate down in the Oceanography Centre. We actually have two government research vessels, uh, the RRS Discovery and the RRS James Cook. So this is the Discovery. And as you can see there, there's a couple of, there's three or four autonomous underwater vehicles, the bigger, longer, yellow submarine looking ones. The ROVs in the back there, there's a couple of what we call surface vehicles as well, unmanned surface ones that don't actually dive, they stay on the surface. And the fleet of them in the, sort of in the foreground, they're called gliders. So they glide up and down in the ocean, so they profile up in the ocean, but they don't take any photos or anything, they're just taking physical measurements. So they're looking at um, temperature and salinity and other sort of physiological, uh, uh, physical parameters in the oceans. It's pretty neat load of kit, isn't it? You can imagine <laughs> the meeting. What colour should we paint them all? <laughs> <laughs> I really like the Beatles. Done. <laughs> um, Good to spot in the ocean, though. Yellow. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Okay, so, so we've had the history. Uh, now we've had a look at the, the, the challenges, what makes these areas extreme, pressure, temperature, lack of oxygen. We've also now looked at how you can overcome that with technology. But what I want to know next is why. Like, why take your science, your research to these extreme environments? Because both are you know, very extreme. We're not built to go to these environments. Why, why go there, Dan? Um, well, uh, 
for me, uh, whilst I love climbing and love being in the mountains, I do have a day job as well. Uh, and I, I'm an intensive care doctor, and, and these are the sorts of patients that I look after every day. Uh, patients who are critically ill and come to an intensive care unit are the sickest patients in any hospital. Uh, they're frequently suffering from what we call multi-organ failure, so all of their organs are failing one by one, their heart, their lung, their liver. Um, uh, and one thing that sort of unites these patients, it's almost universal in an intensive care unit, is the lack of oxygen uh, in their blood and in their cells, and uh, this is what we call hypoxia. So that's the common theme, if you like, between uh, the physiology that we see on the mountains uh, and the pathophysiology that I look after on a daily basis and on an intensive care unit. And what we sort of came up with uh, about a decade or so ago now was that studying intensive care patients is very complex. And the main reason for that is because they're all very different. Uh, the heterogeneity amongst patients on an intensive care unit uh, on any one day is enormous. One patient uh, may have had an operation, another one may have an infection, another one may have had a, a traumatic accident. So every pathology is different, uh, but there is common physiology uh, amongst them. But it makes research very, very hard in this environment. So we proposed a model whereby we take healthy volunteers, uh, ascend them to high altitude, and look at the physiology of the people that we're uh, studying at high altitude, look at mechanisms which determine that people doing well at altitude and people doing badly at altitude, and then bring that information back to the intensive care unit and apply it to intensive care patients to see if we can uh, understand more about the physiology of intensive care patients and ultimately develop treatments uh, that will improve their survival. One of the other things that we've been doing uh, is that we're very lucky enough to work with these people. Uh, these are Sherpas, and these are Sherpas that I know personally. They're all brothers. Uh, and the Sherpas, for any of you that have been to high altitude in Nepal uh, or Tibet, uh, are an indigenous group uh, uh, of people who are born uh, in the mountains, uh, and they perform incredibly well at high altitude. They, they run up and down mountains as if the mountains weren't there at all. Uh, Sherpas in particular uh, are descended from Tibetans, uh, and to the best of our knowledge, the Tibetans have been living at high altitude on the high plains, the high plateaus of Tibet, uh, for around 20,000 years, or around 600 uh, generations. So Sherpas and Tibetans are arguably uh, the most uh, highly developed humans on Earth to living in a low oxygen environment. So we have an enormous amount to gain uh, from studying the Sherpas. And we were lucky enough uh, a few years ago to take a group of 60 or so Sherpas with us to Everest uh, and study them in the same way that we'd been studying ourselves uh, uh, over the previous years to, to understand what, what allows Sherpas to perform so well uh, at altitude. And I'll tell you a little bit more about them later. I mean, it's a really um, clever groundbreaking kind of idea really you know you've got a lot of sick people in hospital who are united in their lack of oxygen in their mm. hypoxia <clears throat> so let's take healthy people to a place of low oxygen mm. so that they then become subjects who are also united in their lack of oxygen and try to work out mm. what is different and then from that track it back 
It's a, it's an alternative to to, to other models. Uh, like many, many people, we use different animal models, if you like, to understand about physiology. But more and more often now, we're finding that animal models don't really bear any relevance whatsoever to uh, physiology in humans. So this is a way that we try to get around using animals for research to, to say, look, we'll just study humans, but take humans and put them in a physiologically stressful environment and understand more about them. And we'll see very soon hmm. some quite significant results have come out from it. That's a little tease. Um, <laughs> let's jump back to the water, though. Um, same yes. question. Why, why take science to those extremes if it's going to be a challenge? Most of our oceans are totally unexplored, and we are still discovering habitats now to this day. So this is just a few of the habitats that I've been looking at um, during my career. So we've got abyssal plains, which on the top left, there's that sea, what we call a holothurian, so a swimming sea cucumber. And in the background, you can see there's just sediment. Now, there's, it looks like there's nothing in that sediment, but if we were to core that sediment and then sieve it out, you'll find hundreds of different species of types of myofauna, so tiny little worms and things like that. The next picture was a hydrothermal vent, so this is an underwater hot spring. So the water that's coming out the top of that hydrothermal vent can be up to 400 degrees Celsius. So it's super heated, super mineral-rich fluids in an ambient water temperature down in that depth of ocean of about 4 degrees Celsius. We've also got deep-sea coral reefs, so on the right-hand side in the middle, that's a cold-water coral called Lophelia. That's actually found in UK waters just off the Bay of Biscay in France, so it's in one of our UK marine-protected areas. But also seamounts as well with other corals, um, tube, giant tube worms, there's all sorts of things going on in the deep ocean. And actually down in the bottom there's a whale skull as well, a fossilised whale skull. So there's plenty out there to be explored. So our history of ocean exploration started really in the 1950s um, when this is Mary Tharp and Bruce Heason. They actually produced the first map of the world's ocean floor. And they did this from what's called single beam um, echo sounder. So you can see in the background to Mary Tharp there, there's an actual track. So this is where a boat goes along and it sends a single acoustic beam to the seafloor and it gets a return. And from that, you can work out the depth of the seafloor. So they took all of those single beam echo sounders and they managed to produce um, the first map of the seafloor. So as you can see, there's a huge ridge system running down the Atlantic and across the world's ocean. So that's called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. That's 60,000 kilometres of Mid-Ocean Ridge, of a mountain range that we didn't really know that was there. And the bit that runs down the Atlantic is 16,000 kilometres. And we didn't actually lay eyes on that until the late 70s. So we actually got photos from the moon from Apollo 11 in 1969 before we actually got a photo of the seafloor on this mid-ocean ridge, which is incredible. So that's that amazing. footprint photo, that really iconic space images, we had those before we were able to even get down to the, the biggest sort of geographic feature on our planet. And, you know, technically that's twice as high as Everest. <laughs> no, it isn't, no, it isn't. <laughs> um, so what, what drives us? I mean, so... We knew about this, this mid-ocean ridge, now we've got the map, and it, it really perplexed geologists because what was happening here was having mountains forming under tension. We know mountains form with collisions with other plates, so this really changed the way that geophysicists looked at plate tectonics. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to go explore this mid-ocean ridge. They looked at how the heat budgets of the Earth and how the Earth's crust was being formed. And from those heat budgets, they realized there was a lot of missing heat, and they couldn't account for it. And so one of the theories was that these mid-ocean ridges, uh, these spreading centers where two plates are pulling apart, new magmas coming up and forming new seafloor crust, they actually thought they might be hot springs. And so they actually went to go look for these hot springs. So they, the US and the um, French got together, and they manned a mission to go look for these underwater hot springs. And they found them. So they found these hydrothermal vents, so these underwater hot springs, there's smoke coming out of them. It's not smoke, it's actually superheated water, seawater with all these minerals in, but it's called black smoke because it has that appearance. 
So they're really excited they found that. But actually, typically in deep sea oceanography and deep sea science, you look for one thing and you find something else. So they went to go find these hot water springs, and actually they were baffled by the animals that live there um, because they didn't expect it. So these hydrothermal vents are actually found at over 1,000 metres water depth. At that depth, no light penetrates. So before they found them, they wouldn't believe that life on Earth could exist in these huge oases of life because photosynthesis couldn't occur. Without sunlight down there, there's no plant life, so there's no basis for the food chain. So when they stumbled across their hydrothermal vents and they found these animals, they were totally perplexed as to how they were sustaining themselves. And they sampled them, and they looked at them, and they looked at the physiology, and then they, they understood that actually they were using a process called chemosynthesis. So using the chemical energy from the hydrothermal vents, these animals were sustaining bacteria internally in, their, in the actual organisms themselves to feed themselves. So it really changed the way we believe life on our planet exists and, and can survive on Earth today. So these tube worms, you can't really appreciate, but they have a really big red plume that comes out of the top of them, and they can be up to two meters long. And they're called a gutless tube worm, so they don't actually have a stomach. Yeah, so taller than me, they're huge. And they have no stomach. And what they do is they actually have bacteria in their gill structure, and that's what's actually sustaining them. So the bacteria are producing the carbon, and that's actually the tube worm itself is then ingesting the bacteria in some form to sustain themselves and live. So that really changed the way we looked at it. And since then, since those discoveries in 1977, that mid-ocean ridge sec um, sections, there are all the green lines there on, on that map, and all the dots represent the hydrothermal vents we've found to date since that, since that first um, discovery in the late 70s. And all of those different colours represent different animals that live at those different provinces. So we call them biogeographic provinces. So they're not only separated geographically, but also biologically by the animals that live there. And this is just a couple of photos of... They're not actually photos. Because of the inherent properties of working underwater, you can't use a flash because of the backscatter. So I couldn't take a picture 10 metres away and get a really high-resolution image. So what we have to do is we have to use our remotely operated vehicles to go up towards the, the structures, and we have our camera facing it, and we fly up very systematically. We move across half a metre, we go down, we come across, we move up, and essentially mow the lawn vertically, and that gives us a continual video sequence of the whole scene. We then extract all of those stills images and then mosaic them together. So then we end up with a one-to-one -one scale mosaic of the actual hydrothermal vent chimneys. And these are all the incredible creatures that um, actually live there. So the top left, that's called a scaly foot gastropod, so it looks very much like a snail, like your garden snail but it actually has iron pyrite growing on its foot. So you see all those scales. That's actually where it's um, accumulating all the iron from the actual hydrothermal vent itself and layering it onto its foot. And there's a gutless tube worm, and there's also a friend there called the Hoff crab, which let's, we'll let's come back him. to later. <laughs> yeah, let's leave him. <laughs> so, so, that, so what's really interesting is that Dan and, and another you know, high-altitude um, explorers, physiologists have decided to go there to, um, to essentially recreate the environment in, in the intensive care unit, mm. to look at our physio physiology and see what changes. Whereas Lee and the, the other teams, um, underwater scientists, have, have gone with a sense of exploration to mm -hmm. see what's there, and then whilst there, found all sorts of new life, amazing life, but also uh, ideas that have then led to big theories in plate tectonics or, or, or in other fields. Um, so there's different motivations to go, but you can see the amount of the, the, the density of the information that comes up once you're there. So we've just had a little flavour of what you've kind of discovered and, and your teams have discovered. Um, so let's, Dan, let's, let's trudge back up. <laughs> um, you teased it earlier, but give us a, a whistle-stop tour through what um, Caldwell Extreme, Extreme Everest 2 have, have discovered. 
Okay. I mean, the, the, we've, we've published quite a, a lot of work from the, the various expeditions over the years now, probably about 30 papers or so. So I just I want to give you a little flavour, if you like, uh, uh, of what we've been doing uh, and what we, we think is important for the future. But I think that the, the place I always like to start is that uh, one of the experiments that we did uh, on Everest was to try and uh, measure the amount of oxygen in a climber stood on the top of Everest. Uh, and uh, the, the way in which we did this uh, was to, to take blood samples from one another. Uh, we didn't actually uh, measure this right on the top of Everest, and the reason for that is that we summited Everest, but it was actually a fairly windy day. Uh, it was about 20 knots of wind, so maybe around 20 miles an hour. The temperature was uh, around minus 20, which is not too bad for climbing in if you're moving all the time. And you've got that big suit on uh, that Greg showed you. Um, the problem was uh, that we needed to take blood samples from each other and you, you can't take it from your arm like your, like your doctor might uh, in a hospital when they want to take it. We need arterial blood rather than venous blood. And the easiest place to get that from uh, in someone who's a little bit cold is a big artery in your groin. So uh, uh, we had to strip off the down suits, uh, expose our groins to one another. Um, Science, guys. We're all friends here, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then stick a big needle in each other's groins to, to get the blood. Uh, and you can see on this uh, emergency shelter that we put up, just a little bit below the summit where it was a bit less windy uh, and there's a little flat area that we could uh, erect this small tent uh, and two of us getting in at a time, one stripping off and the other one uh, stabbing them in the groin um, uh, to get the blood samples that we require. And you can see this chap in the, in the yellow here. This is Pasang Sherpa, one of our... Uh, climbing Sherpas, and in his hand, uh, what looks like a, a flask that might have his morning tea in, uh, that contains the very important blood samples for us. So we took four blood samples from, from four different climbers, and they're all contained in that flask, uh, ironically, to, to stop them freezing because, um, because it's so cold uh, outside the flask. Now, there are two different ways that you can measure oxygen in the blood. Uh, the first is the, the usual way. Uh, this is a device called a, a pulse oximeter, and it, and it flashes light through, uh, your, um, uh, through your tissues in the end of your finger and measures the amount of oxygen uh, using the light. So have you, have you got a number on yours? Have, have you, where no, have we got you, to? You awkwardly have to flip it upside down so we can read it. So let's have a look. Okay, cool. Can you read the numbers? What's the top number? 89 heart rate. Yeah, okay. What about that? He's very excited. Uh, the, the, I understand. The, the, and the oxygen and the saturation? 98. 98. 98. Good work. What do we have? 82 and 99. 99. So that, that's pretty good. So, um, so basically anywhere above 96% or so is, is roughly normal. Uh, <laughs> in people... <laughs> oh, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is roughly normal in a, in a healthy uh, individual. Uh, but these devices don't work at very low oxygen levels. They're only rated an, until you get down to about 70% oxygen, and then they become inaccurate. It's also very cold up there, so the likelihood is that they would stop working. And that's why we chose to take samples of blood from each other and analyze them in a, a, what we call a blood gas analyzer. Uh, and, and in that way, we can measure the dissolved amount of oxygen in the blood, which is a very accurate way that we use on intensive care for assessing oxygenation uh, in patients. And we measure that in a partial pressure. Uh, 
uh, and the normal number for that is about 13 uh, kilopascals if we did that to you uh, now here at sea level. So just to confirm, we just took yours. You were 98, you were 99. That number is the percentage of the maximum amount of oxygen that you can have in your body. Okay, so 100% is obviously completely full. So 98, 99, you are absolutely it's rammed full of oxygen. That's a good thing. Pretty good. Uh, so what we did was we, we, we took these samples from, from four of us, and you can measure that dissolved amount of oxygen, and you can also then calculate the percentage. And the average from the four of us were these numbers. So 54% uh, is, is probably the easiest number for, for, to sort of make sense of. So you've got almost half the amount of oxygen in your body that, that you should have uh, functioning at the, at the top of Everest. Um, one particular person, and it happened to be me, was somebody had to be the lowest. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's usually me. Um, uh, and these were the results from, from me there. Uh, so I had 34% uh, oxygen, uh, which is, is down to what, two and a half kilopascals, uh, if you compare to the 13 being normal. Uh, and you don't really see this level of, of low oxygen in patients, in, in hospitals even. And when we published these results, we, we proposed that this was the lowest ever uh, reading of oxygen in a human being. Uh, and that was in 2009 when we published them. And, and no one's come back to us since then and said, hey, I've seen a lower one. So, <laughs> what an uh, accolade. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> so, so it's a rather unusual record to have, but I <laughs> believe to have had the lowest ever recorded oxygen level in a human being uh, whilst sort of hanging around near the summit of Mount Everest. Um, and, and seriously, though, the, the purpose of, of doing that was to demonstrate that humans can get to very, very low levels of oxygen and still function normally. So I was still able to take samples from other people, and they're quite complicated samples to take, still able to talk on a radio coherently, uh, and to climb safely all the way back down uh, the mountain again. So it shows that we are very, very good uh, at adapting to oxygen, but not how or why we are good at this. When we were looking uh, through the literature uh, uh, to try and make sense of these very low results, the only place uh, that we could find uh, that had numbers approaching anywhere near these uh, were in a normally developing human fetus. So in the baby developing in the womb, the normal level of oxygen is around 2.5 to 3.5 kilopascals in that dissolved uh, terminology, uh, and our average was about... 3.3. Uh, uh, and this is fascinating to us because what this means is that from a physiological perspective, every single one of you here now has been to the top of Mount Everest because mm -hmm. you've all survived that period of developing in the womb as a fetus. Your oxygen levels were as low as mine were on the top of Everest. And from a scientific perspective, uh, and, and a, a very clever chap called Sir Joseph Barcroft predicted this way before Everest was even climbed, uh, it means that if we can get to the top of Everest and survive very low blood uh, oxygen levels, it means that perhaps people who go to intensive care can also survive these very low levels of oxygen if we can only work out how. And I just want to sort of share with you two things that which have become very important to us now, which may explain why some people adapt well uh, and some don't. The first of these is something called your microcirculation. These are the very tiny blood vessels, the capillaries, that deliver oxygen right down to the individual cells in every single organ in your body. Uh, we have a, a camera system 
which you can place the camera under your tongue and you can see uh, moving uh, red blood cells which are carrying oxygen through the microcirculation and make measurements uh, uh, on those uh, blood, blood cells moving. And to sort of cut a very long story short, I just want to show you a few of the results that we've got. So this is looking at us, lowland people, who have been to Everest Base Camp. This is making the measurements, looking at blood vessel density. Uh, so this doesn't look too bad, but if you compare that to the blood vessel density of a Sherpa uh, at 5,300 meters, you can see that Sherpas have developed to have far more blood vessels in their microcirculation than us. So uh, more oxygen is being delivered to the tissues. We can also take moving videos uh, of, of these uh, blood cells moving through. And, and what, what, what does it strike you about the blood moving through the circulation in one of us sat around at Everest Base Camp? Looks pretty slow, pretty sluggish, and not very good. This is a Sherpa's microcirculation, <laughs> okay? So to, to me, you don't need to be a scientist to work out the difference uh, uh, or have any clever measurements, but it's really, really striking how much better their microcirculation works than us, and we see very similar things in intensive care patients. The other thing I want to talk about very quickly is the mitochondria. Um, all of us who, who climb to high altitude can only do so because of the energy expend, we expend in our muscles. And if you look deep into the muscles, each of the muscle cells contains hundreds or if not thousands of tiny, tiny organelles within the cells called mitochondria. And it's the mitochondria that produce the energy uh, that allow us to climb uh, at high altitude. And to put very simply, you can compare a mitochondria to a fire in your house. Now, a fire requires energy, uh, so in the form of wood, uh, and mitochondria require energy in the form of the food that we eat. Both of these systems then require oxygen to unlock that energy uh, and allow us to release it to use it. So what we did was to, un unfortunately for our participants, is we have to take a bit of your muscle out, and this is me at Everest Base Camp performing small surgical procedures on my colleagues to remove a piece of muscle here uh, from the leg, uh, and then we analyze that uh, to see how the mitochondria is working. And to very briefly explain to you re the results, what we do is we look at uh, ourselves and we look at Sherpas and we've studied these uh, at, at baseline, so uh, in Kathmandu here uh, and uh, in London. And basically, if you look at how our mitochondria function, we produce a reasonable amount of energy uh, at sea level. And if you look at Sherpas, they do exactly the same. If you do the same experiment uh, sat at Everest Base Camp, we produce a very disappointing amount of energy from our mitochondria, and the Sherpas start to thrive. They produce even more uh, energy than they do at sea level because their mitochondria become more efficient in the way that they produce energy. And this is a very, very important finding for us because it means that uh, it, it moves the whole uh, story away from how much oxygen can you deliver to the cells, but more importantly, how the cells use that oxygen to generate uh, energy for us. That was an amazing recap of <laughs> a decade's worth of amazing research. And that, that last stuff has literally just been published. Hasn't uh, it? In, within this month, yes. Yeah, so, the mitochondrial uh, stuff, so that's really, really exciting. Okay, we'll, we'll go back to a little bit of that and, and the implication of that in a second. Um, let's go underwater again. Um, so same question, what have you discovered and what is it telling us about that world? Okay, 
So I showed you the map from Murray Tharp and Bruce Heason back in the 1950s. Now we have satellite technology. So all of you all have used Google Earth. You would all been able to sort of zoom in on your house and look on your road. And you, we have that imaging technology on land to be able to get to that scale. It doesn't work in the oceans. So the best we can do is we can get a 20-kilometer resolution. So this is called a gravity altimetry map. So this is generated from satellites. And as you can see there, you can see the mid-ocean ridge really pops out now. And you actually lose the, the UK. You can't really see it in relation to where the mid-ocean ridge is because the features on the seafloor are that huge and that steep. So the way we can look at this is, as I say, we can use a satellite altimetry to give us a good idea of what is happening in the ocean in terms of the large geographical features, but we can't pinpoint them. So that gives us sort of a, about a 5-kilometre to 20-kilometre resolution. But we can use ship multi-beam. So much like Mary Heason and Bruce Tharp used single-beam echo sounders, which was one acoustic ping, we now use ships with multi-beam. So that's spanning out 512 beams, acoustic beams, across the sea floor. So by doing that, we can get the resolution of those seafloor features down to maybe 10 meters. But we're still going to miss stuff. So that's when our autonomous underwater vehicles come in. That's when our AUV comes in. And we can map at that even finer resolution to really pick out those fine scale features. Beakley, like I said, AUVs aren't that they're great at mapping, but we can't actually physically pick any samples up. We can't see anything. So once we have those maps with our AEVs, this is where we can use our remotely operated vehicles, our robots with the cameras and the lights and the arms, to start taking samples. So this is an image of the control van. This is where the pilots will be sitting. So there'll be a bank of pilots at the front. One of them will be driving the vehicle. Um, so they'll drive the vehicle across the seafloor. Another one will be actually navigating to know where we are in relation to the ship. And the other pilot or engineer will actually be using the manipulator arms. And then at the back, as they might think we're rather pesky, but the scientists will actually be driving the mission. So we'll be asking them to, telling the pilots, directing them where to go, what samples to take, which direction we want to go. We'll be looking at our multi-beam maps and really thinking about all the different areas we want to investigate. So the point of this, why do we go down there? Um, most of the, uh, less than 5%, we've seen less than 5%, less than 1%, I think, of the deep ocean with our eyes, with cameras. So, but every time we go there, I'm always quite devastated to see that we're seeing the effects of humans on the deep ocean floor before we've even had an, a chance to investigate the animals that live there. So this is just some of the stuff we pick up or some of the stuff we see on the seafloor in the deepest part of the oceans. Um, many of you would have also heard about microplastics. We're actually seeing microfibers growing in deep-sea corals now. So we're taking these deep-sea corals off the seafloor, and they're actually found to have microfibers, plastic microfibers, actually born inside, like, inside the actual uh, tissue of the animals themselves as well. So it's quite, it's quite scary. Equally, we're moving fishing into deeper areas than we've fished before, but we're going and fishing seamounts and underwater canyon systems that we haven't actually investigated. We don't know what animals live there. And at the same time, we could be taking those habitats away by deep sea trawling, by trawling this equipment along the sea floor. Also, as oil and gas exploration moves into deeper oceans, we're still learning from accidents that might happen in the deep ocean. So this is from Deepwater Horizon. So this is the effects on the deep sea corals from that oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and the effects of the dispersant as well that was used to, to actually disperse the um, oil on the surface. So we're still learning, but we're still exploring this, the, these deep sea environments and the ecosystems that are there. And finally now, um, deep sea minerals is one of the biggest resources that our ocean holds. So from the hydrothermal vents that inspired our exploration, we're now actually looking to potentially mine those resources. So those mineral spires that come out of the seafloor from the hydrothermal vents are very rich in copper and other types of ores, um, which have some commercial value. And so we're now looking to potentially exploit those. These are a couple of the mining 
uh, robots that were actually developed in the UK and in Newcastle, a company called SMD, that will operate down to 4,500 metres, and they will look for these polymetallic nodules, which are those little potato-like things on the surface there under that sea cucumber, or even the hydrothermal vents. So for me, it, it seems crazy that we've gone, in the last six decades, we've not gone from not knowing the mid-ocean which existed to finding out about hydrothermal vents and hot springs, to discovering that life forms can exist in these extreme environments, to now potentially looking to exploit them. So we have a real opportunity to sort of really understand these environments and let's not go by our, our past experiences on land. Let's try and make this a new way of looking at our resources and managing them appropriately. Yeah, yeah. especially when the ocean is so important. Like the phytoplankton in the ocean gives us half of the oxygen that we breathe. Absolutely. Uh, the ocean regulates the temperature because it absorbs so much heat and it carries that heat around the planet. Um, and it feeds over one billion uh, people on the planet. Their primary source is the fish in the ocean. So it's like, we need to start thinking about the ocean. How we manage it sustainably. Not to say let's not do it, but let's think about how we're going to do it, make sure we do it responsibly. We're responsible for the stewardship of it, so I think it's really important. So um, let's just say what's next, Dan. Uh, well, for us, uh, we're very pleased now that we, we've spent the last 10 years um, studying ourselves and the Sherpas at altitude, but we're now able to uh, bring things back to the, the patients that we said we would initially try to help from the outset. So uh, we're currently doing a study at the Royal Free Hospital uh, where we're doing the same experiments that, that I described to you uh, previously. So we're looking at the microcirculation and we're looking at the mitochondria uh, of patients who are admitted to the intensive care unit and also measuring uh, a, a metabolite in the blood called nitric oxide, which may be may well be the master regulator of these two uh, processes and seeing whether these determine whether or not people survive or don't survive in the intensive care unit to, to look further into those mechanisms to see if we can find uh, therapeutic targets. So this, this study is currently ongoing uh, and should hopefully finish this year. And the other thing that we're doing, uh, sort of based on uh, the results we got from the, the blood gas that we did on the top of the mountain uh, and other experiments that accompanied it, is that we're now looking at ways of giving patients less oxygen. And now that may seem a bit of an unusual thing when we've just said how important oxygen is for life, but oxygen is also one of the most toxic substances on Earth. Uh, we have all evolved breathing 21% oxygen, and anything above 21% oxygen is harmful, uh, it, particularly harmful to the lungs, but it, we, we use very high concentration oxygen uh, in intensive care to get people's numbers, like on the, the probe that you had on your finger, back up to normal, but we don't really know whether normal is necessary or not. And we can show that we can live for months on end at Everest Base Camp with quite uh, low numbers, so we'll be starting a study in a, in a couple of months, just allowing our targets for intensive care patients to, to be relaxed, if you like, and allow the, the number on the oxygen probe to sit around 85% or so, and see if that is safe for our patients and ultimately beneficial, uh, because we don't believe that they need an oxygen saturation of 100% uh, to survive. And we may be doing them more harm than good, pushing hard to get to normality, 
than just relaxing a bit and allowing the number to be a bit lower uh, than normal. So these are two uh, clinical areas which are a direct translation from the, the work that we've done at altitude to see if we can benefit patients uh, on the intensive care unit now. So that's, that's what will be taking up my time for the next few years now. Can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and Lee, let's, um, should we introduce him to one of your uh, friends? Yeah. Let's. Lee's brought along a friend who I think it would be superb. Shall I, shall I Go get on. him out? Yeah, yeah, get him. Uh, it's in this one, isn't it? Don't worry, it doesn't bite too much. <laughs> so this little chap here that we have a couple of samples of is affectionately known as the Hoff Crab. So I don't know if any of you have actually heard of this little fella. Um, known as the Hoff Crab because of its hairy chest, as an ode to David Hasselhoff. <laughs> so its scientific name is Kiwa tyleri, um, and it is a type of squat lobster. So it's related to a crab, but it's actually a lobster. And it was found at the Antarctic hydrothermal vents in the Southern Ocean. So as you can see on the top left there, there's one climbing up to the top of the chimney. The black smoke or the, the hydrothermal vent fluid coming out of that chimney registered at 350 degrees Celsius. Now he's in super close proximity, but he's not actually in that water temperature there. And I say it's a he because I know it's a he. Because all the males actually live at the top of those mineral spires. So all the male hoff crabs are all big and they've got these big keeler, big claws, and they're living at the top of the chimneys. And then the females, once, they've, um, once they've, they're ready to reproduce and they've got their, they can leave, they've got their brood, so they've got their young under their tail, they actually move away from the hydrothermal vent and they actually live away from the toxic conditions and the high temperatures. And they actually brood their young for up to two years under their tail. So it takes them a long time to reproduce. And then once those larvae have been released, the females then sort of move back towards the hydrothermal vent, back into that mass where the males and females are, and they can reproduce again. And then the males, once they become spent, so they're no longer useful, um, they just work their way up to the top of the chimneys and they stay out there, like kind of like stags. So they have this <laughs> just there, hanging out, not really doing it's much. So hot. Yeah, it's, it's so hot. <laughs> Very apt. So yeah, um, we have a couple of samples. I didn't here. ask you if we can pass them around. Should we keep them down here and people can come look at them in the end? Yeah, if people want to come down and have a look, we have a so we have a female here and a couple of juveniles as well. So please do feel free to yeah, come, come down and down have a look. Uh, after and questions. examine the hairy chest. Um, it's pretty much time to wrap up. My closing thoughts are this, um, especially for the, the, the younger people in the audience. Um, when I was studying science, I thought that it was going to lead me to uh, a life in a lab um, at sea level in the UK. And the opportunity to meet people like um, Dan and Lee and, and other people who are what I call scientific adventurers, who get to go on these amazing experiences, taking this subject that we call science, which is just the means by which we ask questions and go and find out the answers, just shows that there is so much amazing opportunity for this subject. Um, so for the younger ones that are trying to think of your next steps, um, listen to, to what they're saying. That the, the opportunity to travel... With, with your study, the opportunity to go and explore the world and become scientific adventurers is, is so, so exciting. Uh, to everybody else, I hope that you've really enjoyed um, learning a bit more about these extreme environments and then also about this literally cutting-edge research that's been done there um, by these two fantastic scientists and, and their teams. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's been really interesting. I just learned loads more today than I thought I knew already. John, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for the RI for hosting. Uh, do come down and have a look at Half Crab. Thanks very much.